Welcome to the Modern Merriman Podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Merriman is a podcast from the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian laypeople will rightly divide the word of truth. Hey, Tom, it's good to see you again. Hey, John, great to see you, man. And uh, today we have another guest I'm really looking forward to talking to to discuss with us this whole uh, theological movement, uh, an idea known as progressive covenantalism. So why don't you introduce our uh, friend to us? Yes, uh, we have the privilege of having Dr. John English Lee, who is a pastor of discipleship at Morning View Baptist Church, where he has served for four years. And he's earned a master's divinity uh, at Southern Seminary, as well as a PhD in systematic uh, and historical theology from Southern Seminary. He teaches at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, a course on the Decalogue and the Sabbath and redemptive history. He's also currently an ecclesial fellow with the Center for Pastoral Theologians. And John English and his wife, Rebecca, have three sons, Johnny, Jack, and Graham, and they've fostered many others. John English, it is sure great to have you with us today. Well, it's great to be here. I've listened to to you guys before, several episodes, and so it's a joy to be with you on the show. Amen. Well, uh, just to get us started on our topic of discussing progressive covenantalism, how would you describe uh, progressive covenantalism? What about it? What about progressive covenantalism? And uh, why have you spent so much time studying and teaching on progressive covenantalism? Yeah, those are... Um, those questions in my mind are related and I may answer the second one and in doing so answer the first one. So uh, why have I spent so much time studying this is because um, progressive covenantalism is a theological framework that is um, principally coming out of Southern Seminary. At least the two main proponents or original proponents of it are um, Stephen Wellam and Peter Gentry. Uh, Gentry is an Old Testament scholar, an exegetical and biblical theologian. He's, he's a top flight. He just retired, actually. And then Steve Wellam is a systematician and systematic theologian. And these two professors were teaching in their classes things that um, students would hear They'd go to Gentry's class and they'd hear him lecture and then they'd go to Wellam's class and they'd hear him lecture. And eventually the students would come together and say, that that sounds pretty similar. Dr. Wellam, you need to get together with Gentry. Gentry, you need to you need to talk to Wellam. And so they talked with each other and they realized, wow, we're both kind of saying the same thing. Um, and they, the fruit of that of many, many, many conversations was a book, a monster book called Kingdom Through Covenant, which came out. Uh, I don't remember. Twenty. 2012, so almost 10 years ago, mm-hmm. Kingdom Through Covenant, a biblical theological understanding of the covenants. And that work is um, particularly impactful today. And what they say is that they're, they see problems with dispensationalism on one side, which has a hard discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Classically, at least, there was a there was a hard line drawn between Israel and the church, and there's uh, hermeneutics, there's interpretive assumptions that are made to get to those conclusions. They see problems with that. They also see covenant theology, which in their mind is Westminster Confession, um, and they see problems with that of almost too much continuity. But the Old and the New Testaments are basically flattened out, and uh, there's there's not enough emphasis 
given in their mind to the coming of Christ and how that impacts a transitional a covenantal change. And so they have the problems on both ends and they say, what we're proposing in this book is a middle way, a via media between dispensationalism and covenant theology. And it's built off of a lot of rigorous exegesis done largely by Peter Gentry and a lot of pretty good biblical theological connections, good hermeneutics, and largely good understanding of typology um, that uh, Wellam helps kind of refine and process the bigger picture. And the two of them come together to produce this volume. Um, it's been, um, it's kind of the official or formal um, framework, the kind of culmination of a lot of work done by New Testament scholars like D.A. Carson and Doug Moo and Peter O'Brien, um, Tom Schreiner, and a lot of these guys would generally fall into this camp. Um, younger guys like Jason Meyer, who took over for John Piper, Oren Martin, Jason Derushi, uh, Brent Parker. Those are some other names that have written on this issue. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that kind of answer. Oh, why have I studied it so much was while well, I was in several seminars, PhD seminars with Steve Wellam. He was on my dissertation committee and my dissertation was on the doctrine of the Sabbath, which as we will get to is a big deal in for, for progressive covenantalists, uh, or maybe it's not a big deal and that's the problem. Um, <clears throat> and so Wellam, I asked to be on my committee knowing I was going to write on something that he and I did not agree with. And I wanted him to push me hard. And he did that. And my dissertation was much better because of it, particularly in the area of hermeneutics and typology. And so um, Willem and I have talked a lot back and forth on some of these issues. Um, and so I, I highly respect him. I've learned perhaps other than Tom Nettles, he was probably one of the most influential guys in my seminary training. And uh, I think Willem's new book on Christology is incredible. Um, and 98, 99% of what's in Kingdom Through Covenant is really good. Um, but there's just a few things in there that can really set a wrong trajectory uh, if we if we push it too far. So is that a, that a good intro to what you're looking for there? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely brother. Thank you. Yes. Very, very helpful uh, to, to think of. And um, I, I know we don't necessarily have statistics, but my understanding of... Um, progressive covenantalism really sense this uh, volume, as you say, it's bringing together a lot of the thoughts of some very popular uh, evangelical theologians and scholars uh, has, has really become a more popular approach to covenant theology within the uh, broader Calvinistic uh, and, and reformed world. Uh, and, and so something that, that we're hearing more and more uh, as we, you know, uh, have these discussions on covenant theology. Uh, is, is that what you've seen as well as, as somebody in uh, ministry in a local church? Yeah, absolutely. The, so the originally progressive covenantalism kind of, they, they kind of framed themselves as a subsection of a larger category called new covenant theology mm. uh, or new covenant theologies. Um, Cause it's, it's kind of an amorphous group. Um, but they have since distanced themselves so that for 20, 30 years ago, there was kind of a new covenant theology movement that had started. I don't want to get into all the details of that. Right. And uh, this is kind of a more sophisticated evolution 
of the best of the New Covenant theology. Uh, mm. The worst of the New Covenant theology got way off the rails and denied the imputation of the active obedience of Christ, denied any covenant in, in Genesis 1 through 3. It has all sorts of big theological problems. Um, and the progressive covenantalism guys, they don't, they don't, they're light years better than that. They, mm. They're strong on the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. They're um, hermeneutically and exegetically a lot more precise. They're a lot better published too. They have a lot better mm -hmm. PR. And so mm -hmm. that helps them have a lot more influence. A lot of young people are reading and listening to, I mean, and with good, with good reason, DA Carson, Tom Schreiner, um, Gentry and Wellum. I mean, these guys are, are really trustworthy guys on a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. And so um, there, they are, it, it's really blown up in popularity among the, the, um, reformed and particularly reformed and baptistic uh, traditions of evangelicalism in America. Right, right. So then thinking more uh, concretely or specifically about progressive covenantalism and, and uh, our discussions on the law and the gospel, uh, how does progressive under, uh, covenantalism understand God's law? Well, I will, I've had very specific conversations with Steve Wellam about that issue. Um, because that, I think, mm -hmm. is a lot of the, the crux of the difference between a traditional, you know, 1689 understanding of uh, the covenants and the law and this progressive covenantalism. Because a lot of the hermeneutics are similar, um, but the, the, the most concrete difference is that they don't view the Sabbath commandment as an ongoing morally binding com uh, um, commitment upon believers, or at least they don't view it in the same way. Mm. Um, if you really push them, they will say that there is an unchanging moral standard of God's law, God's righteousness that we must meet. They will say there is an unchanging moral commandment. Um, but they will say that because the Sabbath commandment is not repeated in the New Testament, it therefore tells us that the fourth commandment was done away with. Mm -hmm. So all the other nine are, are repeated in the New Testament and therefore still morally binding. Therefore, we know their moral law. The Sabbath commandment in their mind is not repeated in the New, the New Testament. Um, in fact, it's explicitly done away with, they would say, according to Paul's interpretation, uh, inter their interpretation of Paul in Galatians and Colossians and Romans 14. Um, therefore, we know it's not moral. It was just from Exodus 20 until the end of the Old Covenant. It was just a the Sabbath was an Old Testament, Old Covenant uh, reality. And so that would be the largest under difference uh, on the law. They would also, um, they will say, in Gentry and Wellam do say, there is a covenant that God makes um, with at, the, at creation. There's a covenant done in the garden. They're very vague on what the specifics of that is. Mm. And they're intentionally vague as to the moral understanding of that covenant. So that, that bedrock understanding of moral law that uh, Reformed Baptists have, that God's unchanging moral standard that's the same before the fall, after the fall, uh, and in the New Covenant, that unchanging moral law that's summarized in the Ten Commandments was written on the heart of Adam. That's what we would say. Mm -hmm. they, they would say, no, that's, that's speculative. 
that's not in the text. They want to intentionally distance themselves from anything that sounds like Westminster um, Confession of Faith, Covenant of Works language. They don't want any of that. But they will say that textually, exegetically, it's clear to them that there is covenantal language used in the garden, but they don't want to talk about what the content of that is because it's, again, they, they think that's speculative. Um, and I think that's problematic. I think it's right. problematic when you think in terms of the atonement and exactly. So when Christ comes and he's the second Adam, how does his work relate to the first Adam? I think there needs right. to be a moral standard there. That's the same. Or you, if you really start pushing things the wrong way, you could undermine the atonement. And again, you can get into issues of um, the so, okay. imputation of righteousness and all of that. But right. What ahead, is Tom. speculative? Like to, to be maybe to refine that a little more or to, so I can get clarity in my own mind. Yeah. So they say that the Westminster view of the covenant of works might be speculative. They want to stay away from that idea. And yet you're saying they turn around and they will nonetheless affirm that exegetically and from the text, there is a covenant in the garden. Yeah. And so is it speculative or is it not? And what no, the, exactly the content, the content oh. of the covenant would be speculative to, in their mind to say, for example, they would not want to say Adam broke the Ten Commandments. They hadn't been revealed to him yet. Yeah. They would say God, Adam broke the law, which was don't eat from the tree. But they don't so want to go murder. any. They don't want to go he any did, further than that because he that's didn't steal. He didn't steal. He right. didn't murder. He didn't lie. None of those things. He didn't have any any gods before God. He, all he did was eat the fruit of the tree. He broke God's <laughs> revealed law to him at that point, and it would be indeed anachronistic to say that the Ten Commandments, which hadn't been revealed yet, brought back into the garden. I think that's how they would speak. I don't. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but well, they would, I. I they would, yeah, I, and I don't certainly don't want to put words in their mouths either. I could, if if based on what you're saying and in my knowledge, I, they they do recognize there is a, again a moral uh, law that is a permanent uh, reflection of uh, God's holy character and and righteousness. Uh, but in their understanding, that is revealed to us. It sounds like through the new New Testament, right? And, and so we can, through the lens of the New Testament, look back on the Old Testament and see, okay, well, th this, this was also true then uh, because of the repetition. So, you know, if, 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 if one's going to hold that there is this ongoing uh, eternal uh, moral standard, presumably uh, they, they may hold to something like that in the garden, uh, but, but they're not using these categories that we're used to, <laughs> right? Uh, certainly. In, and part of, in, part of the problem is they, yeah. they reject any understanding of the trifold division of the law that has right. historically reformed um, theologians have understood that there's moral and then from distinct from the moral is ceremonial and civil. And they say that typical responses of, well, who gets to determine what's ceremonial, what's civil, uh, all of it as a covenant was done away with, in Christ, it's all gone, and the only thing that that uh, remains an abiding moral obligation is that which is repeated. Which again, that reveals their their um, their hermeneutic, their interpretive framework of assumed discontinuity from the old covenant, unless it's explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Which is 
which is just interesting because it's almost the dispensational understanding of, of hermeneutics that there's an assumed moral discontinuity unless it's explicitly repeated as an uh, abiding moral obligation. Um, so a, qu- a question. So in your conversations with Wellam or any of those, uh, the progressive covenantalists, how would they explain passages such as Romans 2, which talk about, you know, that the work of the law is written on the nature of even of the Gentiles. So, do they have a view of natural law that's rooted in nature and in creation and isn't merely covenantal? Or do they say they don't have such a view? Or the only way we can know it is what's repeated in the New Testament? I mean, how, how do they? How I do don't they have a lot of answers to that. They don't deal with Romans 2, 14 and 15 in at least the first edition of Kingdom Through Covenant. Wow. I, haven't looked, I haven't looked at the second edition yet. I believe, if I remember my conversations correctly, that Wellam has a category for natural law, just like he has a category for an abiding moral standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he, he would be... Um, That's already has, a two... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's already a twofold division of the law. You have an abiding moral standard, then you have scriptural ones that aren't necessarily abiding, right? Because <laughs> the old co- the old covenant passes, but there's some abiding moral standard. It's just not well defined. So they do believe in a twofold division. Well, they they do, <laughs> they do. In fact, in Kingdom Through Covenant, Gentry's um, exegetical work on this issue of the distinction between the ten words, the ten commandments. And the rest of the Mosaic law, his exegetical work is phenomenal. I use that chapter to teach in my class a distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial and civil. It's really, really good. But the problem is they get to the end of the Old Testament and they say, well, both of those things, the 10 words and this, they're all gone unless Jesus or Paul talks about it again. Um, And so... Part of what they do in that book is really, really good, and then they well, kind of like leave you, let you well, down at the very moment, the end of it. I also went to Southern, and it was like a mantra I heard repeatedly. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the in the New Testament. Jesus and Paul don't repeat the Sabbath commandment, and it was just over and over. And yet, when I read my New Testament, the more I've read it, uh, it is not clear to me that the Sabbath is not repeated after all. Mark 2, 27 says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. How is that not a repetition of the Sabbath in the New, New Testament by Jesus? Right. Hmm. So, I, I, so I think it's disputable that only nine of the Ten Commandments. Also, certain other ones of them aren't repeated verbatim. You know, yeah. uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Is that in there? Right. There's statements against idolatry, but uh, certainly uh, we, we have these kinds of questions that that remain. And um, it's it's an interesting conversation, which is which is why we're wanting to have this this discussion to to uh, be fair, of course, to uh, those. And obviously, all three of us went to Southern. Right. I went to, yeah. to, to, to Southern and, and even had a class with Gentry, even though uh, certainly not having the relationship and the opportunity that, that you did in your uh, doctoral work. But, but uh, it's, it's really a, um, something that I think is, is helpful for us to, to navigate, you know, fr- from our perspective, which we, again, would root in, in Romans and in other aspects of scripture, 
you, you know, you have the natural law that's that's given to God's image bearers through creation and conscience. You have the uh, positive law that's given through covenant to those in the covenant. Uh, and and so, but, but while there, there seems to be maintaining some kind of distinction there, um, the, the, it also sounds unclear from what I'm hearing th- that that distinction is... Um, that it's not muddied at times, <laughs> that there's not some confusion there regarding uh, the, again, a moral uh, abiding uh, law of nature uh, versus the positive uh, law that's given uh, through covenant. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that future work on this issue will bring greater theological refinement as they receive pushback and as they think more deeply about uh, categories and reformed categories of mm. moral, ceremonial, and civil categories of natural law. How they think about these things. I'm hoping there'll be greater theological reflection um, in the the edited volume called "Progressive Covenantalism" by um, Steve Wellam and, and Brent Parker. Uh, they edited it. the uh, The chapter written by Jason Meyer is on the theolog- uh, on the the law. He wrote his dissertation was on the law, and it's published by B&H Academic, I think, uh, the end of the law. Um, I, I was really hoping that there would be a lot of reflection on natural law and on Romans 2, 14 and 15. And uh, if I remember correctly, there's no reference to Romans 2, 14 and 15 anywhere in the entire book. Um, so as our culture and society begins to degrade or continues to degrade morally. I hope that there will be greater theological reflection on nature, natural law, particularly the content of it. Yeah, How does it relate to the abiding moral standards of God? And then if, if that is true, which we believe scripture does teach that, then that changes how we view the world and how we interact with society and how we think about man's ultimate problem and how we try and affect change in society as a whole. Um, anyway, we can save that for episode two, if you'd like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Amen, brother. Well, uh, we have one more question for you in this episode. What implications do you think does progressive covenantalism have in our understanding of the gospel? So we've considered the law. What about the gospel? If any, uh, I, I think it does. Um, I think I, I'm thankful that progressive covenantalism um, has steered away from some of the more egregious errors of earlier iterations of new covenant theology. Hmm. Um, Wellam being uh, so sharp on Christology and on the work of Christ and on the doctrine of the atonement, I think is, is been good to push away from some of the older new covenant guys uh, that have gone down the path of undermining the atonement by undermining the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, his obedience to us. And so I'm thankful to that. What I, what I do think is that if a, a progressive covenantalist is consistent, then his understanding of the Lord's day could quite potentially be very deficient. Um, and he could run afoul of what Jesus warns us of in Matthew five of um enforcing or releasing any obligations upon people um, being like the Pharisees and, and um, binding where we shouldn't bind and loosing where we shouldn't loose. So they have, for example, 
their their view of the Sabbath is um, Jesus is our our rest. It's a very spiritualized understanding of the fourth commandment. Yeah, they could say, yeah, there's there's actually value in the fourth commandment in the Old Testament. We could actually preach on that, but we preach on it in a way that teaches that Jesus is our rest, and then we're free in Christ after that to to work or to not work or to do whatever. And if you really push that consistently, and this is something I tried to get across in in class in in a paper actually I wrote on the Sabbath for Wellam is that if you really push that, um, the only New Testament command you have, other than, um, you know, the example of the apostles, is don't forsake the gathering of the assembly in Hebrews. And, you know, I could faithfully go to church every Easter, and I have not forsaken the gathering of the assembly. (laughs) Real consistent once a year. Absolutely. not abandoned it. (laughs) No, I have not abandoned it, and I am fulfilling you know, the law as they see it, because I'm not bound by that anymore. Don't put that weekly legalistic garbage on me. I am free in Christ because Christ is my rest. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the, if you really logically push it, it can really undermine a believer's Lord's Day understanding. Now, thankfully, a lot of these men don't have that, either because of inherited tradition or because of patterns of habit or whatever. Uh, in fact, I, I asked Wellam in class, I said, so what does the Lord's Day look like for you and your family? And he said, well, we, we go to church in the morning. Um, their church at the time didn't have an evening service. So they, I said, okay, well, what, what you, so if your kids want to go out and go to the movies or go play golf or go do something with their friends on the afternoon, you know, is that fine? He said, well, no, I, I really like them to stay home and think and think about the sermon that was preached that morning and spend time with their family and reflecting mm. upon God. And so he, he actually was a very it, 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 practically in some respects, he was a stronger Sabbatarian than I was hmm. uh, on some of these issues at the time. But um, he he had he considers himself not a Sabbatarian because the Sabbath's done away with, but has a strong view of the Lord's Day. He's a mm-hmm. Lord's Day Christian, he might say, and he he grounds that on prudence and on um, the understanding of not forsaking the gathering of, of the of the brothers of the assembly. And so, uh, some of the many of these guys do have a strong personal observance of the Lord's Day, mm-hmm. but they're really they will not preach hard on that at all. And I think that can detriment our people um, and and kind of over spiritualize the fourth commandment in a way that's not helpful um, and that can have give our people an anemic view of what the Lord's Day is and the abiding principle of working for six days, being faithful to our responsibilities, whatever that may look like, and then ceasing from those things to focus specifically on the Lord's work on the Lord's Day. Mm-hmm. Um, Right, but the, I had one the, other the, quick question oh, for for you. Um, so, would you say, in your view, that progressive covenantalists have a third use of the law perspective? So, when we're thinking about uh, the relationship between the law and the gospel, uh, would they say that well, the gospel we're justified freely by grace in Christ, and the gospel we have hearts that are filled with joy and love to Jesus, and so the way we express our love is defined by the nine commandments that we must keep. And really, I guess they would say any other New Testament command, but that those are imperatives and come with an imperative force to shape and guide our loving 
joyful uh, obedience to Jesus. So is there a third use of the law? It's just missing the, the fourth commandment. I, I would say for most of them, yes. Um, okay. they, would, they would say that. They, they may not use that language, mm-hmm. but practically they would say that, yeah, yeah, nine out of these 10 are still, that's our path for holiness today. That's how we ought to walk. We ought to do that. They may not ground the ethical oughtness of those commands in Old Testament. They would probably want to ground it in New Testament, uh, which, again, is a really kind of dispensational hermeneutic, by the way. Um, the Reformed tradition has always seen ethical value in the Old Testament commands. Um, and anyway, so, yes, most of them would say that. There are one or two that I have interacted with that I think largely – because they came out of a very authoritarian, legalistic, reform Baptist background. Mm. They were kind of burned by authoritarian guys. They're, mm-hmm. they're less pushy with the law. They're really kind of squishy on the third use of the law. Mm-hmm. But for, in the main, most of them, I think, would have a third use of the law, as, as Calvin lays that out. And, and really, while I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that uh, in progressive covenantalism, they're is a uh, recognition and a defense of the act of imputation of Christ's righteousness. But, of course, the danger, as you say, going back to New Covenant theology and and, and some of these ideas, is if if you don't have that uh, abiding uh, moral law uh, that that is a reflection of of God's uh, unchanging character, uh, then you've, you've really undermined uh, the well, the re- the uh, really the foundation of the act of obedience of Christ's righteousness, right? Uh, that that there is a righteousness uh, of Christ as the God Man who, uh, in our place, uh, kept the law of God uh, through uh, his life and and, and ministry, and, and so to you know, neglect or question or, or undermine that uh, certainly does have gospel implications for where our, our hope is found as well. And, and so while, while that may not be an implication of, of you know, uh, some of the way these uh, brothers are uh, handling uh, the law in that way, it, it's certainly one of the dangers I've seen of those who start to muddy and confuse this, these whole categories of natural and positive law, uh, moral, ceremonial, civil uh, categories. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's helpful, uh, brother, and I uh, want to thank you for joining us. And and uh, sounds like we'll have at least one more episode with you. Uh, I want to, of course, thank our brother Tom for coming back after being away. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the Modern Merriman podcast and the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. Any thoughts or reflections about it, uh, Tom or John, before we head into our second one? I talk too much because I think I answered too many questions. Well, do the next four, you still have material for the next four? Uh, Yeah, I can answer those. It right. may not be as long of an episode. Probably not. To, it yeah. doesn't have to be long. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just trigger Tom and... Uh, trigger me. And I will. And, I'll trigger. And he'll, he'll, uh, 
he'll speak on and on and on and on about these things. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well, again, I'll wait for a few minutes and then redo That's going to the be an outtake, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure. Knowing Bryce. 